Oh, I, I, I promised myself that I would, I would pitch you that we should do, we should, we should, we should try to <laughs> try to talk like Werner Herzog <laughs> the entire episode. Is that your Werner Herzog? <laughs> that is not my Werner Herzog. <laughs> it is. Uh- it is. Jesus Christ. It sounds more like Udo Kier, what you're doing. <laughs> Whatever, it's fitting enough, I guess. Happy anyway. New Year, Lucis. <laughs> Please tell me you hit, hit record for all of that, though. So welcome to episode 17 of Stuck in the Middle with You, a podcast where two guys take a look at a critically divisive film and see on what side of the consensus they fall on. My name is Derek Gaudet, and my friend and collaborator, and also the owner of the world's worst Werner Herzog impression, is Juan Barkeen. Say hi, Juan. <laughs> it's not the worst. It's pretty bad. I'm sure there's someone who can do worse than me. Yeah, probably me. <laughs> I'm glad. My I'm Herzog so glad. is pretty bad. Good. I'm so delighted about that. Anyway. So, so why have to talk about Werner Herzog this early in the episode? Well, we watched one of his movies today. Yeah, we saw My Son, My Son, What Have Ye Done? That is correct. Directed by Werner Herzog, released in 2009. So uh, this was uh, not a collaboration in the traditional sense. Um, It was directed and co-written by Werner Herzog, and it was produced by one David Lynch, whose work you might be familiar with. I I have no idea who that is. That name sounds funky. Well, let me just pull up Wikipedia page here. Uh, so I can educate you. All right, uh, how about we don't and move along? (laughs) This bit is over. (laughs) Yeah, it is. is. So uh, David Lynch doesn't have a writing credit on this. He didn't direct it, but his paw prints are all over this sumbitch. They are. But I'm getting ahead of myself. One, what is my son, my son, what have you done about? Uh, It's a weird (laughs) fucking movie about, I don't, okay, it's about some weird mother and some weird guy who has that weird mother and he kills her and the whole movie is basically like half like the police confronting him him at his house, like like basically a fucking standoff uh, (laughs) separated by a fucking flamingo garage door and... Uh, the rest of the movie is like told through like weird semi chronological, but not really flashbacks to random moments in his life and his like life through other like told through other people. And it's a weird fucking movie. And uh, Michael Shannon plays the weird guy and uh, Willem Dafoe and Michael Pena are the two main cops. Uh, Chloe Sevigny is his fiance. fiance yeah udo kier is like the dude who is mounting a play which is a uh, the arestia it's like a modern revival of the arestia it's like a weird fucking like tiny ass like no name theater that they're fucking performing it in or at least that they're practicing in and like the movie vaguely mirrors the arestia but not enough to actually be interesting enough but that's me getting ahead of myself and then uh grace sabrisky is uh his mother who is weird as shit which makes sense because of twin peaks here's the thing with this movie uh one half of it most of the things in flashback feel like a 
uh, Werner Herzog ethnographic documentary. They kind of not all of it, but like a lot of it really does. And uh, uh, but otherwise, it a lot of it takes place in Mexico or in Peru, places where you could imagine Werner Herzog shooting a film. A fiction like or a documentary lot of the fucking, doesn't matter. Yeah, like a lot. Like okay, when they're in. When they're like in flashbacking to Peru and through the mountains and shit and like the rapids, it's so beautiful. It's very nice. That there's this one shot of Michael Shannon just laying down on a rock, like and leaning his head back upside down to like quote unquote stare at the water. And it's the most gorgeous fucking shot in that entire movie. Then there's like scenes where like he's at like a farm or like walking through Mexico with a ton of weird like close-ups on like people's faces staring at him and him staring at them and like how about uh Brad Dorif as the weird racist uncle oh my god that like I don't I don't <laughs> get his purpose I don't know whatsoever in the movie I mean I guess I guess Brad Dorif needs work I mean I guess but like I don't know. It was so uncomfortable. Like there was this. There was this that was one very point, unpleasant. <laughs> there was this one point where he was like, "The only people who are in theater are like, you know, the f the 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 queer f word, and then like, like it was like Negroes who something." And I was like, uh, "It was uh, to 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 coin a phrase. It was NWA." Yes, that's but, right. That's but right. No, but of no relation to uh, Dr. Dre and Ice Cube and all those. Gentlemen. Yeah. Yeah, but it wasn't with like, like the actual like like the actual N word. It was it was just like old timey racist thing, and I'm just like, what like is I, this character doing in this movie? Yeah, my immediate thought was like that was the weirdest NWA reference I've ever seen in a motion picture. <laughs> basically, basically, and um, have you heard straight out of Compton? Oh my god. I would have. I, I think I would have like shot myself as someone that like That's referenced that record. at a different point in the movie. I feel like that should have happened. But anyway, um, yeah, no, like all of the flashbacks feel like Werner Herzog, and then all of the present day feels like weird knockoff Lynch. You know why it feels like knockoff Lynch? Because Lynch was the executive producer. <laughs> okay, that's that's one thing, but it's all in San Diego. Doesn't have that mythic that LA makes feel. Sense. It's not Los Angeles. We're talking about Sandy. It's in San Diego. All of this, but it does have that sort of Lynchian sort of, Deadpan I guess, comedy. Like sun, I was thinking more of a sun-kissed, uh, surreal noir. Okay, that's fair. Like I mean, I do, I do think there's like the deadpan humor is very much him too, though. Well, you know, there's a scene where Willem Dafoe brings Udo Kier and uh, Chloe Sevigny coffee, and he spends thirty seconds apologizing for not bringing them coffee. <laughs> which is right. about as lynchian as it gets more or less i'm sorry him like pouring the fucking razzle dazzle cup and everyone just staring at him and i'm just like this is and he's he, like i think he just says something like like about oh you make the best coffee and i'm like jesus christ it's like <laughs> it's a fucking lynch movie i can't deal with this like one thing about all of these interactions everything with involving michael shannon feels stilted and I think that's because this movie. Okay, you're gonna have to sort of bear with me on this one because I'm gonna take. I'm gonna. This is this is my this is my fan theory. This is my. Ooh. This is my my idea about the movie. This film is a movie about PTSD. It's not elegant, and it's not, I guess, accurate or anything. But 
it's a movie about experiencing a traumatic event and it affecting the very way that you interact with the world around you. Everything Michael Shannon does and says is weird. The first time we see Michael Shannon in the film, he just kind of appears in the frame going razzlem, dazzlem, looking at, uh, I mean, there's a crowd of people that have gathered around a house, in front of a house, because there's cops there. And little do we know, we don't know this yet, Michael Shannon is the perpetrator of the crime. And he's just kind of there being weird. And he's got two pet flamingos that he refers to as eagles and drag. And and he has a basketball. Basketballs show up. There's like a leitmotif involving basketballs. And there's other leitmotifs about God and about giving away your stuff. There's like a mishmash of religious imagery in this film. And the movie doesn't make a difference between a massive traumatic event and a religious epiphany. It doesn't feel like saying this is a movie about PTSD is a bit of a stretch because like, I understand like, okay, well, um, like it's part about of his PTSD past case. event is that he goes to Peru and then basically he tells everyone like, you know, listen to the river, like don't fucking go on this shit. Like I'm yeah, not but- going to go on this shit. You know, you guys should be like me, blah, blah, blah. And then everyone goes on that shit and then they die. Everyone dies on the river except for him because he didn't go in the river. And he comes back a completely different human being. But then again, we never really saw what he was like before this event either. Um, Here's the thing. The way this movie was like put together and shot is really intriguing and very interesting. But you know what would have been awesome? The movie that the characters describe. Because there are like long scenes of people saying, he did this, he did that, we did this, and this happened. And I'm thinking, please show me. <laughs> please show me all these interesting things that are happening. They're mm-hmm. describing the crime. We never see the crime. We see up to the crime. Yeah, we see the I end know. result of the crime. I think incident is deliberately left out of it because that kind of increases not just the weird factor – but it draws attention to how weird the everyday of the film is. Yeah. Just the normal shit, like the normal in quotes shit that happens in the film is so uncanny. We don't really need to see all the ancillary sort of genre stuff, for lack of a better term. Because the movie is already weird enough as it is. I guess it's an exercise in style in that fashion. It really is an exercise in style in as a whole, though. Like, I kind of expect a Herzog movie to be a little strange and a little little offbeat i feel like the way they set up all of these these like flashbacks and flash forwards and these events like punctuated obviously by the fact that other people are essentially telling this man's story herzog and lynch you could say are kind of eccentric filmmakers but they're eccentric in different ways yes very different ways and, and this feels like a mishmash of their it work. does it does feel like kind of a mishmash like if you had told me someone who wasn't herzog had made this i would have been like yeah I could see I could see him not having made this like like if this movie was just uh, a guy goes down to Peru and faces off against nature at the behest of a bunch of hippies he's with. That's an awesome movie. That's a great premise. That sounds like a Herzog movie. And if it's like, oh, there's been a murder in uh, in in Southern California and there's this weird family and theaters involved somehow. That's a great movie, too. That's a great pitch. That's a Lynch movie. Together, they make kind of for like a uneasy kind of disjointed, but like at the same time, I still liked it. It's interesting. It's definitely an interesting exercise in 
and, and, and fragmented con- storytelling. Well, that and also contrapuntal style. Yes. Because it's like half Herzog doing Herzog and it's half Herzog doing Lynch. Yeah, more or less. Like, I hate emphasizing this, but every single fucking character is so goddamn deadpan. But it works to such great effect. Maybe it's because you expect someone like Udo Kier to just be kind of weird or out there. Yeah, but, like, at the same time, like, you look at fucking uh, G- Grace Zabriskie and, like, there's this one scene. It's, like, one of her, like, her first fi- – it might be her first shot. Yeah, it is her. I think it's her first. In the bedroom? Yes. Yes. It's the first fucking shot of her. And she just <laughs> – she walks into the bedroom. And, like, mind you, it's the first and, like, I think only sweet piece of music that uh, they show, like, they have in the entire movie, which is a flashback between Chloe and, uh, Chloe and Michael's characters. And she's walking into his room. Yeah, Brad and uh, what's her fucking name? I can't remember. Ingrid. Uh, Ingrid, that's right. And they walk into the room together, and it's all, like, sweet and nice. And then, like, his mother comes in, and she's, like, just kind of standing there, chilling, talking with them. And then so she leaves, longer. and, like, Ingrid's like, your mom's fucking weird. You need to move out and get, like, a real life. And, and then, like, I know, but she needs me. Yeah, and then he walks back in. She walks back in, and she brings them, like, Brad. like... No, she doesn't bring the no no no. Wine. She brings two yeah toasts basically like you know like oh here have a fucking toast. I just and then she just something. stands there. She just stands there, and it's the most menacing, uncomfortable lighting in the entire universe in that room. And they hold this shot on her face for like what feels like an eternity, even though it's probably less than thirty seconds. Well, all of the movie kind of has this sort of dark, sinister lighting. Even the outdoor scenes in San Diego. Everything shot in San Diego looks like a horror film. It really does. It looks like it's building to a horror film. And, well, we don't get the payoff. I mean, that's part of the exercise in style. Yeah, I know. But I, I just thought of something. What? Every time Grace Zabriskie is on screen, there's food involved. Yes, there is. You've got Jello, brownies, the, okay, wine, that, like, jello. That, like, that that charcoal... Jello. What the fuck was that charcoal as Jello? It's so weird. Maybe it was blackberry Jello. I don't know. Was it blackberry Jello? Maybe. I'm like I don't know. It I looked mean, like genuine maybe, charcoal. Maybe it's cherry Jello. Maybe how dark is cherry Jello? I haven't eaten Jello in years. I've I had cherry know. Jello and it was not that dark. Like it's like. Do like, they even make like blackberry Jello? Can we Google this? I don't. <laughs> Can we Google to see if they make? I'm gonna Google blackberry blackberry Jello. Jello yeah. I want to like I want to ask like Siri like what kind of black like what kind of fucking jello there is such a thing as blackberry jello and it looks kind of like that but no the one in the movie was like You know what maybe they just put food coloring like pitch black fucking I'm going to ask I'm going to ask Siri is there such, like what the fuck uh, you know hold on <laughs> hold on What the fuck kind of jello was in the movie my son my son what have you done I'd blush if I could. <laughs> <laughs> you know what? Fuck you, Siri. <laughs> we don't need this bullshit on the show. <laughs> Fucking hell. You know what? It's probably just food coloring. They'd probably just use black food coloring and put it in. Maybe that's why she's saying she'd blush because she's adding blush to herself and that is also coloring. Because I don't know. I don't know this is a stretch. I don't know, man. Does food coloring get your telephone off? I don't know. Kind of weird-ass phone I you hope got. it does. Anyway, man, with all this Siri nonsense, this podcast got fucking weirder than the movie. 
no, it is not weirder than the movie because I have not tossed oatmeal out of a fucking <laughs> garage yet and had Willem Dafoe literally say, it's all very strange. And well, like, that was the moment I was like, this, this fucking movie. <laughs> and why, why would, why would a friggin' East Coast Quaker be the face of God? I'm really glad that like Puritan oatmeal is the face of God. I appreciate that. Like that's, that's beautiful. <laughs> truly, truly beautiful. I don't know. I mean, Maybe between the Quaker guy being the face of God and Michael Shannon giving all of his earthly possessions and being in Peru with a bunch of hippies somehow, is this like kind of a weird screed against consumerism? Is it? Is it, Derek? I, think <laughs> I don't you know. may or may not be reading too much into it. I f- listen, I mean, I'm a podcaster and I'm a film writer. I am – well, I'm not paid, but I would be paid to overthink things. Yes, that's if, true. I mean, there's an essay that's to there. be written about this movie being an anti-capitalist screed. Yes, there's also uh, an essay to be written about this movie having like needlessly surreal bits that are pure, pure lynch. There's like there's this one fucking scene where Michael Shannon, a little person who had never appeared in the movie before this moment. And, or appears after. Yeah, or appears after. Literally never, never. And who was the third? Was it Udo Kier or was it the racist uncle? I don't know. Was he wearing a suit or overalls? I genuinely can't remember. But I know there was a third person in the shot. And all I hear is like the beginning chords of fucking Kukurukuku Paloma. And I'm like, no, this this isn't happening. And then they just like go into full. They just just play the song while people stare off as though it's a portrait. Just staring, staring at the camera, staring. Yeah, they 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 pull off the uh, the living portrait gambit a few times, like this movie was fucking my own private Idaho or something. Yeah, they did it then, and they did it with uh, when the Jello shit happened. But the Jello the, shit happened. The exactly. Shitty Jello happened. I just, it was. I don't know. It felt meaningless. It felt literally like just like Lynch without purpose. And well, here's I was the thing. Not, I'm, like, I'm willing to argue. I'm willing to argue that when it happened with the food stuff at the table, that it was to underline how friggin' awkward all of it yes, was because yes. it almost felt as if that was going on when Grace Zabriskie shows up for the first time. Exactly. Like it's like felt appropriate. Like Grace Zabriskie is a conceptual uh, momentum sucker in this movie. Every time she's on screen, everything gets like a million times weirder, and that's saying something when you have Michael Shannon being very weird in the first place. More or less. <laughs> I'm, real, I'm trying to figure out something. It's like the, the the kind of basketball thing baffles me, but I still don't entirely understand why that was like, like, and then and then at the end of the movie when the kid grabs the basketball, is it just like the basketball is a metaphor for the fact that like I am not the only person who will go through this experience and end up killing someone? Because of my experience, like or, I don't. Or maybe like, it's like this child will grow up to be six foot four and be a center in the NBA. Maybe. Although I guess know. a center in the NBA are generally the taller fellas, so he'll probably have to grow up to be six ten or six eleven. Exactly. Thank you, Derek. Uh, <laughs> um, All you sports fans listening to Stuck in the Middle with you can now delete the angry email you were going to write. Good. Do you what know? What the hell are you talking about? You six foot four center. That's a big oh my god. 
Derek, please. That's please. my angry jock voice, by the way. <laughs> that is too much sports talk for this for this evening. I didn't start talking about like Pedro Almodovar when I brought up Cucurucu Paloma. You know what? Which, you're, like, you're entirely within your rights to do so because I absolutely am. That song is. I mean, I don't know if it was made popular by uh, an Almodovar film, but like that was the first time I ever heard it. It was. Uh, it's from Talk to Her. Um, Spanish which title, is please. A super. Oh, hable con ella. There you go. It's a super, super good movie. Why? Why am I doing the Spanish title? I'm shocked. <laughs> uh, I mean, I guess because I'm like the fucking token Latino of this goddamn podcast. Yeah, you're, uh, you're you're the token Latino in so in so much that I am the token <laughs> French the token Frenchman. You're the token white. Uh, <laughs> anyway, uh, but that Frenchman. was the movie. You can be the token French Canadian. That's fine. But that was a movie that I first heard it in. And then, like, you know what other movie used it was the five-year engagement fun fact. Not <laughs> that, like, anyone particularly remembers that movie. And then I just heard it in this, too. So is it's, that, it's is that Is that a Sandra Bullock, Ryan Reynolds jam? No, it's not. I'm kind of bitter that you would suggest that because that is... Um, that's something else, right? That's another. That is, that's, that's another romantic comedy with a pun in it, right? Do you do you know what the title is or, or no? Not? I don't remember. It's it's the proposal. Thank you. Yeah, no, Which the five year a- engagement is with um, Emily Blunt and Jason Siegel. All right. I actually just gave that DVD to my mother, and she just saw it like two days ago. That Fun is a romantic fact. comedy, though, right? Yes, it is. Okay, cool. <laughs> Yeah, uh, well, it's like a dramedy. Whatever. Anyway, whatever. Um, I get a bit off off track here. I want to talk about the score a little bit. Yes, that like fucking weird ass, kind of overused score, but I was mostly into. Yeah, uh, the score was done by uh, a man named Ernst. I hope I get this right. Ernst Reisiger. Apologies to any Dutch listeners. Uh, that's R E I J. Well, I'm pretty, is that I'm what you said? Because it sounds like you said. Reisiger. Reisiger. A Dutch cellist and composer who uh, usually plays uh, jazz, improvised music, and contemporary classical. And oh boy, does this sound like jazzy contemporary classical music? Pretty much. There like is a-, a tonal folk classical hybrid going on. It's really interesting, though. It's really cool. I keep yeah. saying the word interesting about this movie. I hesitate to call it good, but it is really interesting. It's fascinating. I think there's a lot of good parts to it. I don't know if they necessarily individually mesh perfectly. Yeah, I think the movie uh, where the movie fails is, is the connected tissue because, you know, stylized performances and weird score and all that, that's fine. But it, it kind of like pushes it, against itself. Yeah. But um, I do I, – I really liked the score. I thought it was a little like – um. Over, not overwhelming necessarily, but like it was too much at times. And there was this one, there's uh, that piece where like Michael Shannon is just kind of like walking through, and then he stops at the piano and sits down at it. That that piece was really, really gorgeous. This movie would have been like a million times better if during that scene Michael Shannon just busted out a drum solo. No, it wouldn't like, have. Like eat your heart out, Neil Peart, Mike Portnoy. No, Bill it, Bruford. Okay, um, just gonna name a listing. I'm just gonna name a bunch of drummers. Um, <laughs> uh, name name a drummer. Oh, that's just one drummer. Any drummer. 
just one drummer. Except like, the ones that I've mentioned, obviously. Which ones did you mention again? Neil Peart, Mike Portnoy, and um, Bill Bruford. <laughs> okay. From Rush, Dream Theater, and Yes, respectively. What a what a lineup. I feel like like Buddy Rich. Yeah, you is did that, it. Okay, I'm like, is that correct? Hashtag jazz. <laughs> I was like, I was going to say Art Blakely, but then I was like, maybe, maybe not. I don't. <laughs> Those are literally like the only two people I could name at this point in my life, and I'm okay with that. Like, Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich is one of the greatest jazz drummers of all time. That's literally the only and, reason. And a, and, <laughs> and a direct influence to Rush drummer Neil Peart. I know this because I'm a fucking nerd. Well, you know who you didn't mention the 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 kids Art, from that Art. Whiplash film, those well, my, modern well, day film references. And uh, just so you know, though, uh, Art Blakey was also a drummer. Okay, I was right. Okay, I'm not going crazy. Yeah, I'm Miles like, Taylor. Miles, Miles enough, like. <laughs> yeah, Miles Teller drums, but I don't know if he's like a. I don't know if he's in a band. So I know I was making a joke. Let me live. Anyway. No, but- but Miles Teller does drum. He is a yes, drum. No, no shit. I know he does. I saw Whiplash. I John saw bon- the movie. <laughs> Did you just say John Bon Jovi? No, I said John Bonham, you piece of shit. Oh, I was like, who the, like what the fuck is Derek talking about? Anyway... <laughs> Um, did you have any particular, oh, 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 one of the things that really frustrated me about the movie is when the SWAT team arrives, and I genuinely don't think I've ever seen a shittier SWAT team plan in any single movie in my lifetime, ever, ever, like, it was so poorly, 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 poorly thought out, like, wouldn't you go into, like, the back neighbor's house and like slip in through there and like blah 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 and like plot it out better than like everybody just gets the fuck on top of his house and like aims guns at him like that seems reckless <laughs> bill ward oh bill wait ward. yeah we're not talking about drummers anymore right no okay. no we're not right. like you shit <laughs> <laughs> and you ask why I'm antagonistic towards you. Like I don't you, I don't I don't deserve you, this. You are correct about the SWAT team plan, but I feel like the police procedural angle is probably the least developed in the film, but also the least important because it doesn't think, lead to weird no, performance. No. I disagree because I genuinely think that like you do get some kind of like not weird performances but i think the deadpan that like both pena and defoe give is like it's weird enough like nothing about what they're doing feels like a genuine like what i would expect cops to do but at the same time like there's this one like almost a throwaway line that Willem Dafoe says to Michael Penny after he suggests something like kind of silly and like TV cop like, and he's just like, nah, they only do that on, you know, cops only do that on television or something. And I'm just like, but you guys, you guys, you guys like, no, like <laughs> you guys aren't doing what real cops would do either. You shits. <laughs> but anyway, uh, this movie I, I, was weird. Yeah, it was. But I do have one favorite shot in the whole movie, though. Like, I know exactly what my favorite shot is. It is when 
they are in, I think it's the airport, and Michael Shannon just runs up these staircases, and he starts walking down the upstairs. And then it cuts to what he's looking at, and he's just looking at this beautiful, beautiful, like, architecture in the fucking building, in, in, and it's just like this, this series of kind of, like, circular, kind of beautiful shits like glasses and other things and he says wouldn't it make the perfect stage for a cosmic melodrama and like i don't know why but that line and that shot just stood out to me because it's literally just this endless set of tunnels with glass and just beautiful architecture on the side and he called it like a tunnel through time or something like that and it was just really 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 beautiful and yeah, I don't know. I kind of want an entire movie about that. <laughs> I also really love the opening as well, which is oh. just like train rolling on by. Oh, I thought you meant um, the phone paying in the car. Oh, well, no, that was okay. <laughs> I think now is as good a time as any to go straight into uh, the final judgments. Okay. That's whether fine. or not. Whether, you didn't whether... have a favorite shot? Um. Uh, let's see. This movie wasn't exactly like. There obviously there are like the the nature shots in Peru were really cool, and really there's 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 something kind of delightfully weird about just that last shot of the basketball and the tree against the San Diego skyline, and then the kid fucking grabbing it and then walking away. Like this movie didn't really grab me visually. Okay, that's fair. I thought the visuals were super interesting. Actually, they're, I think they really they, complement they the narratives. They like. were interesting, but that's I guess this. This movie, in a nutshell, this is, whole movie is interesting. It's terminally interesting, but in spite of that, I am going to give it a fresh. I'm also going it is, to give it a fresh. It is definitely worth seeing. It is a, a unique. It's it's a unique little wrinkle in uh, Werner Herzog's filmography. That it is. I but I I mean I am going to disagree with you. I think there's like there's a lot of beauty in the way it was shot. It's very different. It's not traditionally like pretty pretty, but like. I think it's really, really I, like I hate saying interesting, but like it's really, really cool. Like it's really like I thought it was really cool, and like I took a bunch of stills at multiple points because I just really liked the shots. You picked this lovely movie, so I did. it is your turn to give us the recommendation. No, it's not. It's your turn. Is it really? Yeah. I thought it was. I don't fucking remember. Whatever. Who cares? Um, my recommendation is gonna be another. Michael Shannon movie in which he also plays weird and crazy. But um, in this movie, he plays it a hell of a lot more like actively, I guess, than in, in this lovely movie. And it is also by a great auteur uh, who you all might know made a little little movie, a little movie called uh, called The Exorcist. And um but more importantly to this show, he directed previous recommendation to live and die in LA. That he did. Yeah, you tying in all this bullshit. Uh he also made like my favorite film of two thousand eleven, which was Killer Joe. But um Stroken. Yeah. Stroken, baby stroke it to oh whatever. Uh <laughs> my recommendation is Michael Shannon, Ashley Judd, and Harry Connick Jr. in Bug. Bug. Yes, which is Tracy Letts's play turned screenplay directed by William Friedkin, which is about like 
a war veteran and like this woman in a fucking motel room and they think there's a bug infestation in the room and shit happens and it's really fucked up it's really fucking good it's like my favorite tracy let's play although i really do love killer joe as well um i do not like august osage county <laughs> I'm that was a tracy that let's thing too yes it was fun fact of the day that that fucking does anyone up. remember august osage county I remember it because it's like not a terrible play, but it's not a very good play, and it was turned into a middling an movie, Oscar-nominated middling movie. I still can't believe I still can't believe <laughs> like Meryl and Julia got nominated for that, but whatever. Look at you, <clears throat> first name basis with these. Actors. I'm always first name basis. That was the same year that Jared Leto won, so fuck that year at the Oscars. Fuck it. Fuck it. Fuck it. Anyway. Um, yeah, if we open a little parenthesis, what's the best Jared Leto movie? Is it still mm, Requiem for a Dream? None. <laughs> I don't I mean, like Requiem for a Dream outside of um, The Women. So Jennifer Connelly is really good in that. So is Ellen Burstyn, was she nominated or did she win for this? I can't remember which one of the two. Oh, I know the best Jared Leto movie. It's The Thin Red Line. Oh, right. <laughs> Yeah, I was you like... Uh, furthering the parentheses, you know who's really good in Requiem for a Dream, though? Marlon Wayans. Marlon Wayans is good in it, and so is... I mean, Jared Leto's fine in it. I think they're both good, but they're overshadowed by Jennifer Connelly and Ellen... Ellen uh, Burstyn? Yeah, Burstyn. She's, she's Burstyn at the seams. I was going to make that joke, and I'm so glad you did it instead of me, <laughs> because it's fucking awful. Anyway, okay. uh, what's your exciting recommendation of the day my recommendation is a film from 1984 the link is one willem dafoe uh, as he seems to be often whenever he shows up it's a uh, film directed by the great walter hill it's uh, streets of fire it stars oh, wow. it stars uh, michael perret as a recently released convict going back to his hometown uh, this whole movie has kind of a uh, melodramatic comic book archetypal quality to it it's kind of a musical but not really. I mean, there's like sort of Jim, Jim Steinman-y songs going on. Like you can easily imagine someone like Bonnie Tyler singing. I'm into that. It's all like wet asphalt and neon lights. Like Walter Hill is really good at shooting knights. Like if you've seen like The Warriors and The Driver, you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. And and every line of dialogue is like a one-liner. I'm into that. <laughs> it's, it's really fun. And uh, if you were wondering where uh, – Nashville rock group the Proto Men uh, hijacked their aesthetic from it's right here in bold colors. So, Streets of Fire. So, okay, Juan, that... what the fuck are we doing in two weeks, man? It's your pick, your movie. Oh, well, actually, um. I have no idea what this pick is, so. I'm so glad you don't, because I have been on. Uh, no, Wait, that's Modo. not true. I do know what it is. <laughs> Nate? Oh, you, you looked it up? No, no, no. Well, I mean, I, you you wrote it at some point. Yeah, but I didn't write specifically which movie it was. Okay, well, I know it's a Pedro Almodovar film because you're in the middle yeah. of a big run. I've been on an Almodovar binge for like since I, I got dumped uh, because oh, I really wanted to watch Women on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown because I felt like it was in tune with my spirit. Did you not make at one point like a, a an edit of the title cards that just says Juan on the Verge of a Nervous Breakdown? 
I did. I did do that. That was so long ago. Not really. It was like sometime earlier this year. Memories are weird beast. I know. I still am a woman on the verge of a nervous breakdown. But uh, anyway, I did that because I was like, oh, I'm sad. And I felt like it reflected my mood. And then I was like, man, I should watch all of the Almodovar films that I haven't seen, which turned out to be like, I think, fucking like 12. I mean, not no, I've seen 12. I had seen 12. Then I saw two more. And anyway, one of the movies that I hadn't seen, I realized, interestingly enough, had a 50% on Rotten Tomatoes. And that movie is High Heels. High Heels? High Heels. What year is this? 1991, the year of my birth. A mid, uh, a mid-era Almodovar film. Yes, it is, and it was nominated for Best Foreign Language at the Golden Globes, but not the Oscars. And it has a bunch of like staples of uh, Almodovar's career, notably Marisa Paredes, who is magnificent in most of his movies, and a young Javier Bardem is in it too. Fun is Penelope, is Penelope Cruz in this? I don't know. Is she? Is she? I'm asking you. <laughs> I actually don't know. I feel I. I don't think she is, but I'm not a hundred percent certain. I don't think she is in this one. Well, I guess I'll find out soon enough because next time that you're going to hear us speak, we'll be speaking about High Heels, released in 1991, directed by Pedro Almodovar. Juan and I run a website, uh, Dim the House Lights. You can find it at dimthehouselights.com. That's where our uh, long-form film criticism goes. Uh, we're going to have a big week in the coming week. So uh, so uh, buckle your seatbelts and log in, see what we have uh, for you. And uh, uh, one of the things is the exciting conclusion to the 1989 Tournament of Films. If you're interested in this podcast specifically, you can go to the podcast's Tumblr page, which is at SITMWI Podcast altogether. .tumblr.com. There you can find links to our iTunes show page, our RSS feed, and even our Twitters and Letterbox accounts. Uh, if you'd rather just go there straight away, uh, Juan is on both websites at Whoa, it's Juanito. That's W-O-A-H, it's Juanito. And I'm on both places at Derek underscore G. Uh, Juan writes elsewhere at the Miami New Times, and uh, Sound On Site is currently dead, so I've got no other home on the internet. It's only them, the house lights now. Fun. So, uh, yeah, I think that's about it. Not bad. Not bad. All right. So, congratulations uh, to us. <laughs> thanks for listening, and see you in two weeks. Woo.